0: Greetings of peace, and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies. This is your host, Shahnaz Aqani. In today's episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, I speak with Jacqueline Fuchs on her fantastic new book, Locating Maldivian Women's Masks in Global Discourses, published in 2019. Jacqueline Fuchs earned her PhD in anthropology from the University of Pennsylvania in 2005, and she's currently an associate professor of anthropology at Florida Atlantic University. A cultural anthropologist, Fuchs has conducted research in many parts of the world, including but not limited to to India, Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, and the Maldives, which is the focus of her latest book. This book explores questions such as, what is a mosque? What are women's mosques specifically? What historical values do women's mosques offer? And what is the relationship between mosque spaces and women's religious work? Why are women's mosques around the world, both historical and contemporary, omitted from both popular and scholarly discourses on women's mosques? This excellent and theoretically sophisticated book offers answers to these questions and more. Complete with images from Fuchs' research, the book is an ethnography of women's mosques in the Maldives, an almost unheard of phenomenon. It situates women's prayer places, the Nisha Miskis, the physical buildings in which women lead prayers for other women, as complex sites of socio-historical and cultural significance. Ultimately, Fuchs explores the ways in which these spaces relate to, contribute to, and fit in larger conversations about the transnational Muslim community, the global ummah, rather than being limited to to the local with no historical significance. Locating Maldivian women's mosques in global discourses may be assigned in graduate courses in anthropology, Islamic studies, women's and gender studies, or any combination of these. It would also make an exciting and inviting read for those generally interested in questions of gender spaces, women's religious works, and specifically women's masks. In our conversation today, Fuchs explains the relationship between space, place, and masks, and how the terms space and place help us to better understand women's mask sites. We also discuss the common patterns in the regions of the world that have historically had women's masks. In addition to women's leadership roles in these spaces, the idea of women imams, the public-private dichotomy in the context of the Nisha Miski, and much more. Without any further delay, here's my discussion with Jacqueline Fuchs. Hi, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your book um, on, the, on, on women's masks in the Maldives, locating Maldiv- Maldivian women's masks in global discourses. Um thank you so much for joining me and also for willing to have this conversation with me. Um, before we begin our interview, I want to I want you to tell us a little bit about yourself um, who you are, how you entered this field, and maybe also your journey towards this book. okay, well,
1: thank you first of all for having me here. I'm so excited about it. I'm a huge fan of of the podcast series actually so um, it's really wonderful to be here. Um, I am an anthropologist. Um, My background was I was trained in anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania, um, and I teach at the Harriet L. Wilkes Honors College of Florida Atlantic University. Um, As a cultural anthropologist, I actually began my initial training working in uh, the northernmost part of India. I worked in Ladakh, which is on the border. I always say it has the dubious distinction of being on the border of of India, Pakistan, and China all at once. Um, So it's... um, very interesting area. And my initial work in the region was on trade in Central Asia. Um, my first book was Trade in Contemporary Society Along the Silk Route uh, and Ethnohistory of Ladakh. And a lot of times I uh, think people find it odd that I went from the Himalayas down into the Indian Ocean, you know, from the, <clears throat> excuse me, from some of the highest to the lowest points in Asia. Um, but I was I was drawn actually to this topic and to studying the Maldives. Um because of some things that I had read about the Maldives. And I actually see a lot of continuity in terms of culture flows and change and the influence of history in these regions. Um, but I first actually came to the Maldives because uh, my former advisor just mentioned being there. And, and I was curious. So I started looking up these newspapers and I happened to find a Maldivian newspaper online um, that was in English which was talking about a crime that had recently happened on one of the islands. And the reporter very casually mentioned um, that the imam of the women's mosque uh, gave this response. And I, I was really surprised by that because I had just finished reading um, The History of Women's Mosque in Chinese Islam by Maria Jashak and Shui uh, Jinjun. And this was, this was kind of fascinating to me because I, I was led to believe that the Hui women's mosques in China were fairly culturally specific. And um, a lot of times people say they're the only ones of their kind. So um, this really drew me to ask questions about what these women's mosques were, the, the Nisha Miski of of the Maldives and the Mudahim, the, the women who run these mosques. So I ended up going to the Maldives in 2006 um, first to the capital, uh, Malay, and then to some nearby islands, including an unnamed Northern Atoll, where I did some research. And I was able to conduct anthropological fieldwork using a, a mixture of participant observation, interviewing, rapid assessment procedures, and so on. Um, that's what initially drew me to the Maldives. um, And I had hoped to return there, but for various reasons, I wasn't able to do so. So I thought about this material a lot, and it stayed with me. I tried to stay in touch with friends from the Maldives and kept up with the news, asking them questions. And this went on for a while. But what really prompted me to write this book was um, after doing that work, the number of times I would open up the news or even academic books and find these mentions of the first women's mosque or the first female imam or the first place that women can pray. You know, and it, it became very frustrating actually for me, right? Because there's all of these sources that kept saying this is unique to uh women in this area and unique to the Muslim world and so on. And I kept thinking, no, that's that's not true, that's wrong. You know. So I, I kept gathering information about women's mosques in different parts of the world, and I began to think more and more, I mean I was really led to have to admit that this wasn 't just an issue of being uninformed you know it's it 's not hard to do a google search and, and look up you know women 's mosque and find lots and lots of mentions of them. so at that point, you have to ask why are not people are people not looking for the information and I felt that it was because they have preconceived notions of that that information wasn 't there um, so as I say in the preface of my book. I really see this as a part of of, of Saeed's Orientalism, right? Said wrote about the sort of Muslim other that's constructed by knowledge that, I quote, requires no application to reality and gets passed on silently without comment from one text to another. And I think this is a great example of that, you know, where people think that they know what they're talking about with Muslim women and space and religious practice. And so they don't actually ask questions and see what's actually there. So that's, that's what pushed me to write the book. Um, which has then a much broader focus than just the Maldives, obviously. Right,
0: right. Oh, I, I enjoyed it so much. I, the last chapter was really, really depressing for me. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that when we get to that. But I had, a, I had so much fun reading it. I thought it was incredibly rich, the various themes and the way you connected them. Um, I mean, it was just all really, really powerful and wonderful. So thank you so much for writing it. I learned, I, I, I had no idea, by the way. I never bought into the argument or the claims that, oh, this is the first women's masks or the first women's mask in the world in, in history and, and so on. I knew that wasn't, that wasn't true, but uh, this was the idea of women's masks in the Maldives was completely new to me. Um, and so, so thank you so much for writing it. I got a lot out of it. So what do you see as the overall argument or maybe multiple arguments um that uh, of the book itself
1: uh well um I'm really glad that it spoke to you because it was a great book for me to to write, and I enjoyed it, but I think there are, are multiple strands of the argument I'm making in the book you know it's it, there's there is a lot of sort of pieces there are a lot of pieces that I try to bring together, first related to what I was just saying about people's preconceived notions obviously, I want to correct some of these misperceptions, right, to give some information about the Nisha Miski, um, to share the stories of the women with whom I worked and to really put their voices forward. Um, But in the book, I'm really trying not just to describe the mosques and correcting misperceptions. I also want to examine those misperceptions more closely. Um, So a lot of the book is trying to understand why women's mosques are generally missing from larger discussions about Muslim spaces and gender in Islam. And that's why I titled it Locating the Nisha Miski in Global Discourses, because the discussion is very much about trying to pinpoint how this comes into being and and what happens um, when we have these types of talks that exclude some people. So, of course, in addressing this type of issue in the book, I end up tar- tackling some larger religious issues, you know, trying to address what is a mosque? What is an imam? Um, and then also more regionally specific questions as well about the history of Islam in the Indian Ocean, women's roles in the Maldives, the role of island spaces in the Maldives, um, and all of these points really came together for me at the end, um, where I make this overarching argument that there's common narratives, and this I I mean both popular and scholarly. I don't. I don't want to take scholars off the hook here, you know. Um, but there are these common narratives about the so-called Muslim world that omit a great deal about specific local experiences, such as women's mosques, that make global narratives not really representative of actual lived experiences. And then it's quite important in this book that these omissions, and I, I call them silences, um, in relation to Michelle Rolfe Trio's work, Silencing the Past. Um, These silences aren't just blank spaces or mistakes. I argue that they're crafted and shaped by different historical narratives, as well as the contemporary political and economic patterns and and other influences that I talk about in this book. So I try to bring all of these points together um, to make that argument.
0: It's striking for me to learn that the presence of a mosque determines whether an island is legally inhabitable or not in the Maldives. How was that determined and what is the logic behind that? Yeah,
1: um you know this is I give a few examples of this in my book um where people talk about this where people spoke about it to me in the Maldives as well as some sources on this um the idea of a mosque making an island habitable and and I think what's interesting about it is this is both in a symbolic sense and a literal sense, right? So um, I give the historical case of Girivaru Island, um, which in the late 60s or early 70s, depending on what you read, um, had such a small community that it didn't have enough adult males for Friday prayers at the mosque anymore. Um, and this is following a sort of Shafi jurisprudence that's commonly followed in the Maldives that um, says that a congregation has to have a, a minimum of 40 Muslim men specifically in order to have a Friday prayer mosque. Um, so, in this case, uh, apparently, according to Maldivian histories, uh, they were moved first to one island and then forced to relocate to another island, and then they were resettled by the government, um, this particular community. So, this is obviously a legal issue or legal point in the Maldives, and it is very important to understand when I'm writing this. Book the time that I'm writing about in this book, 2006. Mosques were not just crucial social services provided by the government, but they are government establishes uh, establishments that were funded and staffed by national government. So, under the uh, Religious Unity Act, the Maldivian government actually regulated um, mosque leadership, provided training, provided the funds for mosque upkeep, and so on. So, the presence of a mosque building um, was as much a, a sort of civic center as as a religious center in a way we could say um in that it uh you know allowed for a government presence um i say that it's not just an administrative or a a literal sense though for allowing a mosque because as i talk in the book um i think there's also an argument to be made that the mosque plays a really important symbolic role um in the book. And it actually sort of sets up the idea of what makes an island habitable for people when they're talking about islands. And so it's a part of um, the ways in which I talk about uh, the notion of space. And it sets the stage for thinking about cultural ideas of space.
0: Hmm. Speaking of space, so the theme of place and space is an integral one throughout the book. And it's something that you explore in a very theoretically rich way. Um, The title itself includes the word locating, right? It's not just Maldivian women's masks, it's also locating rather than you know simply being Maldivian Maldivian women's masks. So how does our understanding of the terms space and place help us to better understand women's mask sites?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh well, you know, in the introduction, I refer to my book as an ethnography of place because the central interest of my work is, is not simply describing women's mosques, but engaging with what they mean as sites. And, I've always joked, you know, my my background as an anthropologist is an American anthropologist with four fields training. um, And I was heavily influenced in graduate school by archaeological work and archaeologists um, who were involved with my training. So I've always joked that I'm a partial archaeologist in a way. Um, And the site influence uh, comes out there because I think about um, the materiality of space and uh, how to think about uh, the layout and the items that we see and so on for what they tell us. Um, but I, here I'm drawing in this book um, upon a lot of theory from geography, um, uh, particularly human geography, starting in the 1970s, um, where um, we think about place as something that's constructed symbolically, uh, socially. So where the the concept of place kind of de-emphasizes the physical location of a space. And allows for a a more complete recognition of the ways in which meanings are assigned to those spaces. So we think of the site as the ways in which people make sense of them, right? Um, Spaces, places are spaces and how they're experienced. Um, Geographer Tim Cresswell called places things to be inside of, um, you know, sort of containers of experience. I think another way of thinking about this, I always tell my students is is that saying you can't go home again, you know, after after you've left a place. Like you can return to a place that you once lived in the past, um, but that doesn't make it your home anymore, right? Because um, home is a place. It's, it's not just the site. It's the meanings and the interactions with the site and the history and the feelings and the relationship to that site. Um, so if we think of place as this container of meetings... Uh, with context, then it means that there's a temporal as well as spatial element to it. Um, and I want to explore this idea in my book. So I use um, Henri Lefevre's work on space to think about how time contributes to shifting meanings of place as well. And this helps me to develop my whole argument about um, how women's mosques are built up as places, uh, both in local and, and global discourses, and really everything in between, because I talk about local discourses, national, regional, and global. Um, And my ideas about space and place then in the book kind of allow me to challenge a lot of the ubiquitous generalized narratives about mosque spatial practices, right? The things that people assume about mosques, particularly about mosques and women as these sort of static truths, Um, Because if we recognize that, that space turns into place through the ways in which people interact with it, then we have to take seriously what people are actually doing. Um, And the focus on space and place allows me to do that, allows me to ask the questions that I'm most passionate about as an anthropologist, um, some of which I've mentioned before about what actually makes a mosque a mosque, why women's mosques are significant to us, what kinds of historical contexts have shaped these and how we can think of all of these levels I mentioned, the local, the national, the global communities differently in relation to those places. Hmm.
0: So this book introduces us the readers or me anyway, me definitely, to many other places where we can trace a history of women's masks, such as China, which we, uh, which is I think the the women's mask, um, the theme of women's mask is much more uh, power or it's much more well known I think um, in China. And you mentioned this in the book as well. But also India, Yemen, Kenya, and possibly other countries, depending on how we define the word mask, right? So, do you notice any common patterns in the areas or regions of the, regions of the world um, that have a history of women's masks today or historically?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking me. This is another great question because this detail was very important to me. Um, I, I think I bored my colleagues of uh, countless lunches being super excited about every new little mosque site I found when I was researching this. Um, but it, the Information that I bring forward, particularly in Chapter 5, where I'm thinking about all of these accounts that I've found about mosques historically and contemporary and trying to put them together, you know, it, it just started out as my notes, right, when I was trying to bring together the evidence that would refute these generalized assumptions about, oh, this is the first one, oh, these don't exist. But as I started <clears throat> bringing these together, I noticed some really interesting patterns. So I found histories of women's mosques, as you mentioned, in a lot of different places. The, the very famous one is the Hui community, is of China, the Nusi, and um, it I think is the best known one. But the Lakshadweep Islands off the coast of India, um, the Comoros Islands over by Madagascar, coastal Kenya, um, some sparse uh, but interesting, intriguing historical mentions in India and Yemen. Um, Some other types of prayer spaces that, depending on how you talk about a mosque, may or may not be considered, um, such as the Surarot. Uh, I'm sorry, I I can't (laughs) say this, but Surau in some parts of Malaysia and Indonesia, the Jaka Jigin in Senegal. Um, These were all really interesting historical mentions. Then, of course, there were the contemporary women's mosques initiatives that I also just wanted to bring into the discussion. Somalia, South India, Afghanistan, England, Denmark, the U.S., all of these places where people are talking about women's mosques spaces in new ways. But it's the historical discussion that I was i was really interested in talking about a pattern with. And so I came back to that in, in chapter seven of the book, because I argue that this pattern, or at least the probability of a pattern, and it's, it's very hard to say, you know, that this is a conclusive evidence, but there's a probability of a pattern uh, based on this evidence, um, because... If you look at some of these places that I mentioned, all of these places are meaningful when we mirror, when we see that they sort of mirror um, the historical movement of people and ideas in the Indian Ocean histories. So almost all of these places are historically linked through trade and the historical presence uh, presence of Hadrami traders from Yemen, uh, contemporary adherence to the Shafi school of jurisprudence because of those historical links. Um, And that was super exciting to me because the more I thought about it, I thought, well, i mean that's that's quite uh, interesting and and it challenges a lot of Indian Ocean historical narratives because historical narratives about the Indian Ocean rarely feature women as travelers. Usually, you hear about men moving around and women are stationary often they're you know local wives that are left at home or you know port based family business runners if they're active in the business in Indian Ocean histories. Um, so they're generally discussed as as being the sort of bearers of culture rather than religion, and to think about women's pattern uh, patterns of of shared women's practices that could possibly link these sites together was was really intriguing to me. Um, you know, I, I see so few mentions of women in regional histories of Islam in the area. Um, And this is something that I've been working a little bit more on since this book, actually. Um, But, you know, I I noticed, for example, recently I was reading a book about kinship-based religious networks. And, um, you know, kinship-based religious networks are formed by heterosexual marriages specifically necessarily involve women and men. Right. Um, And yet the, the book focused primarily on the notion of brotherhood. For kinship models for this kinship system. And I thought, well, you know, if they're formed by marriage, there's other models to consider here, right? But it, it wasn't really addressed. So I mean, this is just one example. But one of the arguments I tried to put forward in, in chapter seven of this book is that a lot of these versions of Indian Ocean history support androcentric understandings of Muslim community in the Indian Ocean, not just contemporary community, but the past and how Islam came to spread in Asia in general. Um, these are ideas that basically relegate women's practices to the local and interpret women's religious sites or the, um, like the women's mosques as spaces of purely local significance. And so the, the idea of potential historical patterns was super exciting to me because it really disrupts these assumptions. And it suggests that we need to think about other possibilities, the possibility for exploring how all of these women's mosques and related prayer spaces um, may be linked together historically. It's a really exciting line of questioning that I think w- needs to be brought into the sort of historical discussion because it does a challenge the assumptions that we have about women's mosques in each of these places being unique, culturally specific, modern phenomenon, and in general challenges this idea that they're peripheral to histories of the so-called Muslim world. Um, so that is that is why those accounts were particularly interesting and engaging for me to consider. Certainly.
0: So there are so back to the Maldives. Um, mm-hmm. There are some really fascinating differences between the government um, and the local women's narratives of mask development. So, for instance, the women are telling you that the masks existed in the in the nineteen fifty in their childhood, but the government um, brochures, for example, are telling you, you no, know, they were developed after nineteen seventy nine. Yeah. So I'm interested in why this discrepancy, and also what does the government gain from claiming that it was later?
1: Yeah. So, you know, this was interesting. You know, um, when I went to talk to government officials in Malay, um, uh, particularly in some of the ministries that were associated with this, I was told um, that the Nisha Miski, the women's mosques, were first developed by women's committees on the islands um, and that these women's committees were sort of social uh, civic groups that had been formed. Um, by their 1979 national women's committee because they were preparing for the 1985 United Nations World conference on women in Nairobi um, which was a very interesting detail and 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 sort of maybe ask a lot of questions about global influences um, uh, notions of gender and how they they sort of can impact people's lives um, but but the, these government officials thought of of um, the nation miski when they were talking about them in these interviews as as these government projects basically to get women outside of the house um, and to have a particular form of women's advancement um, in the islands. Um, And I was surprised by that. Um, But then shortly after I went out into the islands, and and as I say in my book in, in the Maldives, when you talk about the islands, that's all the other places besides Malay. Malay is also an island, but it's the island, is the is the center of the government. Um, but the islands are, are the are other atolls. And as I went into the other atolls and began talking with women in these Um, places, I heard really different stories, particularly when I spoke with the older women. And there was a lot of variation in this. So some of the younger mudahim, the women who run these mosques that I spoke with, said, yeah, I was hired as a government uh, employee, and this mosque was started by the government, and it was built to get uh, women outside the home, and and it was the same sort of narrative. Um, But then on a number of islands, when I spoke with older women specifically, uh, I heard very different stories, so in the book, I give one example of a woman that I call fatima uh, and uh she worked as a as a um with a him on her island um during uh the nineteen fifties she said And she um, had started very young, but that wasn't even all, you know, because obviously 1950s is before this late 70s, early 80s version. She actually told me that she remembered in her childhood, there was an old Nisha Miski made of palm leaves that women in the island would go to, and it had been right in front of her house. So she described this this mosque structure made from palm leaves, which is um, an older form of buildings in some parts of the Maldives. And she told me it was a very simple uh, structure with a low roof. She could even reach the roof as a little girl. She remembered standing up and doing that. But she would go for classes, a woman who led uh, Arabic classes there. And Fatimah would go with other girls from the island. And they would um, learn Arabic and they would learn to pray. And women would come to pray together there. And the women would take turns. She remembered leading prayers. um, And the one woman who taught them would, would often lead the prayers for them. Um, and when I asked her, you know, the dates for that, she was she was um, a little bit uncertain about that. But then she remembered that during World War Two, um, this women's mosque was a central meeting place. And she remembered this, she, she said, because during World War Two, um, her mother had told her that um, they got rations from the government and in order for women to get their rations, they had to go to the mosque and write, um, their names would be written on a small piece of wood at the mosque. And after a woman pe- pe- um, performed her prayers, she'd turn her wood piece around to let, her know the, to let people know she'd, they'd done their prayers for the day. And that was the sort of um, census, we could say, for who was there and who could then have their rations. It's a really interesting mention for thinking about the, the sort of political as well as religious role of the mosque. Um, that we see in the contemporary period, but it also suggests, obviously, a much earlier version of the women's mosque. From an archaeological standpoint, this is quite interesting because um, thatch palm leaf thatch buildings don't really show up well in the archaeological record, particularly in the tropics. Um, so it would be very hard to find evidence of this type of building. And I do mention. Um, uh, in one of the other cases, in another part in the Comoros Islands, there are these accounts, historical accounts of, of similar types of buildings um, for women, although there's no archaeological evidence again. Um, so I, I was intrigued by that discrepancy, obviously. And um, I think that there's no easy answer about what's correct, um, the discrepancy, I think, has quite a lot to do with the varied perceptions of women's mosques, um, that whole idea of what is a mosque and what is it there for and what makes a mosque a mosque, right? The the government has a very specific idea about a mosque and its um, civic and administrative role compared to Islanders' perspectives. And so I don't think that every... Women's mosque is necessarily the same type of place. They may have been sites for prayer, all of them, but but not constructed as place in the same way. And on some of the different islands that I visited, um, they provided different social contexts for women, uh, and women talked about different histories and varied religious meanings to them. So I think I think in some ways the Nishimiski title or the women's mosque title is is a catch-all for some some much more varied ideas about the types of spaces that women use together in the Maldives. Mm
0: -hmm. You discuss the various forms of women's leadership and how these women themselves see their roles as, right? Not all of them identify as leaders or figures of authority. And you encourage us to to recognize the ways in which these women's leadership positions complicate simplistic expectations of what it means to be a female leader. So they're not necessarily going to be feminist uh, or support or, or endorse feminist values. So when are they, when are they authority figures, uh, whether according to them themselves or to their communities? And I'm especially interested here in your conversations with these female leaders. I had so much fun reading those. Um, And both for this book and for any other research that you've done talking to women about their leadership positions.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's been my good fortune to be able to work with women in many different countries and talk about their leadership roles. So I've done some work in Indonesia, um, with women who uh, have leadership roles in uh, the Basantran, the religious schools, um, with uh, Alima, the religious scholars in northern India, um, with Saudi uh, women at universities who um, have formal religious degrees and teach religious studies at women's universities, um, as well as the Mudahiman in um, the Maldives. So it, it has been very interesting for me to Um, sort of think about these all together and compare them and think about what women's religious leadership specifically means. Um, In chapter six, I tried to bring a lot of these together. And also I I, um, brought together literature um, on some other mentions of um, women's leadership in Asian Muslim communities, particularly Philippines, Uzbekistan, some some examples that I had read about you know, both of the chapters where I bring together mentions of women's mosques and mentions of women's leadership, these are are sort of putting together resources that I always wished I had been able to just find easily of, you know, all of these different examples in one place so that you can think about them in relationship to each other. Um, so in Chapter 6, where I, I bring together that literature on women's leadership roles, my goal was really to develop a sense of what religious scholarly and leadership roles exist for Muslim women in Asia, to better contextualize the role of the mudahim, um, but also uh, to think about um, how we talk about religious knowledge and practice as a source of leadership um, rather than only social uh, influence or social roles, Um, and what types of questions and what types of issues were of interest to women when talking about what it meant for them to be a religious leader. Um, so for example, I've done some work with um, Alima in Ladakh, um, the Alima, the female scholars. and these are women in Ladakh who um, went outside of the region to um, receive formal religious education in Madrasas in India and then later returned to this Himalayan region to teach religious studies primarily to women. Um, they provide religious instruction, they conduct some public te- teachings in the region. you know, they go around and preach, um, and, they answer questions for women. And the, when I spoke with these women, that was something they emphasized quite a lot, right? That they um, provided answers to questions that women may not want to ask male scholars um, about personal issues um, and provide an Islamic perspective on that. Um, so one of the things that I always like to do when I talk with um scholars in these different regions is tell them about some of the different cases um, that I've seen and, and and discussions I've had with other women. And I was talking with um, one Alima about uh, the Mudahim in the Maldives and, and described a little bit about the women's mosque and leading prayer. And um, this woman in India um, told me that uh, her understanding is that that women should not um, lead prayer. She was very careful to tell me that, they, that the Alima of Ladakh pray in congregation with other women during Ramadan, um, but they don't lead prayers. This was important for her to emphasize that they, they only instruct women who don't know how to pray, but they don't consider themselves to be leading prayers. Um, and this was a really different perspective on their role during prayer, which obviously is a central practice in, in uh, Islam. Um, and very different from the Mudahim that I spoke with in the Maldives who talked about leading prayer and, and their role in leading women in prayer in women's mosques. What I find interesting about this is that these aren't, I don't think, what we might just call local variations, individual perspectives from different communities. These differences actually mirror, um, or actually, I think more accurately, I would say they're, they're real world iterations of more theoretical global debates. Um so, for example, in the Columbia Source Book of Muslims in the United States, um Silver's gives us this summary of of positions of different Islamic schools uh, Sunni schools on women leading prayer which which range from women being allowed to lead other women with no restrictions to um it being uh, possible in some situations to women not being uh not supposed to be leading other women at all um so these women's roles that I talk about in this chapter and in this book are the actual experiences of Muslims living with these different perspectives. And I find that really crucial to understand as an anthropologist. You know, anthropologists are all about the specific and the the details of daily life in in particular places. Um, One of my favorite quotes is from Clifford Geertz, an anthropologist named Clifford Geertz. And this is a short version, but Geertz says something like, nobody lives in the world in general. Everybody lives in some confined and limited stretch of it, the world around here um, so for for all of our talk about concepts like the the Muslim world, I'm putting heavy air quotes around these or or the global ummah, what what people actually live in is their own experiences. They don't live in these general ideas like the Muslim world or the global Ummah. They live in their local experiences. And so these women's roles aren't just curious local variations to me, but what those global systems are actually made of. and once we once we start thinking of that way, then um, we get back to that main argument of my book, right? If, If the diversity of what we're thinking of is the world around here isn't being reflected in how we talk about the world in general, which is supposed to be comprised of the world around here or is experientially, then we need to ask why and consider the gaps between those discourses.
0: You provide a very careful critique of the caveat, and I was a huge fan of this, um, that identifying women as imams can be problematic because, I mean, the, the idea is that, w- sorry, the caveat is that identifying women as imams can be problematic because they don't necessarily play the same roles that men do as imams. Um, in other words, women's status as imams is more socio historically bounded than men's status as imams tend to be. But you point out, um, and I think very uh, very beautifully and correctly, that male imams too don't universally play the same role as imams, right? Um, imams in North America don't necessarily play the same roles as imams in Pakistan, for example. So can you speak to this some more? And why does it matter if these women are identified as imams or not? And what do we gain or lose by using the word imam for female religious leaders um, when we wouldn't shy away from defining men in such positions as imams.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think we can start with, you know, it, it matters because obviously these questions have very real uh real world applications for thinking about, you know, um, influence and authority in different communities. Um, and it's an interesting one theoretically as well. So I find that quite compelling, right? The real world and theoretical. Um, overlap there. Um, when I spoke with Maldiven mudahims, um, it was interesting because the when I read about them and when I talked to people who were familiar with their tasks, they were very commonly referred to as imams of women's mosques. Um, some of the women referred to themselves as that, some of them did not. Some of them were very clear about where I'm a mudahim, not an imam. Um, so, it was interesting to me to think about why they would be called imams of women's mosques, whether or not this was appropriate and and relevant and accurate here, right? So I'm asking in this book, given what we know about their roles, is it accurate? Is it relevant? Um, And as I said, it's crucial um, because the role of imam is widely recognized as a legitimate form of Muslim authority and power um, within those global discourses that I am so interested in. Um, So when I discussed all of these different Um, women's religious leadership roles in different Asian communities that I was just talking about. Um, It was interesting to me and important to me to note that many of them don't have the same widespread legitimacy as um, the title imam. And obviously that has, as I said, implications for discussions of women's power and autonomy in Muslim communities. I mentioned a number of different viewpoints in this book, right? And you you said it was, uh, I think, what did you say? A a careful critique, right? And um, obviously, as an anthropologist, I'm I'm not a um, religious studies expert. So my role here is to understand the different viewpoints and to think about the implications of those viewpoints. So I, I mentioned different viewpoints, authors who embrace the idea um, that women with varied titles can expand notions of Muslim practice, while other people who see that women's inclusion in the imam title as a part of religious reformation and many other ideas as well. Um, I don't provide any simple answers to this issue. And I, and I don't mean that as a, as a sidestep because I don't see that as my role here. I hope to contribute to a dialogue that helps problematize assumptions about gender and religious leadership in Muslim communities and to forward the types of conversations that I would like to see people having um, that are complex and are engaged and are meaningful and informed. Um, I do think that I was very glad you brought up that point about the men. I do think it's very important to recognize in this discussion that men who are called imams don't all fulfill the same role either. Um, Some of my more recent work in the past 10 years has been Uh, on a project in the U.S., and I've been traveling all over the United States um, as a part of my American Mosques project, and interviewing imams in different mosques. Um, And I've definitely seen variations regionally. Um, I've also seen variations since when I started this project, uh, um, as the imams' discussions of their tasks have really noticeably shifted over time based on the political climate of the country. Um, And as you mentioned, um, imams roles can vary culturally as well. One of my favorite examples of this I gave in the book was an interview I did with an imam in 2010 in Iowa. And this, um, man, uh, Told me that he had originally been trained and worked in as, as an imam in the Middle East before he came to work in the United States, and he he told me that his former congregation expected him to, he said, yell at them. Basically, right? Um, they wanted confrontational sermons. He was he was he was told that he wasn't doing his job if he wasn't yelling at people and chastising them and making sermons that that put the fear of God in their hearts, right? Um, and he came to the United States. And he said to his shock, he found his new congregation didn't really respond very well um, to this approach. And they actually wanted a different model of imam. They wanted an imam who would be a counselor and advise them and provide them with a lot of the um, sort of answers to questions that they were navigating in. Um, in terms of being Muslims in what for them was a new country for some of them um, or for family matters and so on. So um, this imam, it was wonderful. He told me that the the changing needs of his congregation when he came to the U.S. and realized this big difference, he actually decided to go back to school and he went and got a higher education degree in counseling so that he could fulfill the duties that he saw in this congregation here. And I I was so impressed by this man's perception of the fact that being an imam in different places and in different times too perhaps um, really called for different types of training and different different actions on his part, and I believe that's very important to recognize about the religious excuse me the religious leadership work of any imam, whether it's male or female. Um, they're always situated within particular socio historical relationships, and I think that alone that realization is a really good starting point for more engaged discussions about this um, in the future.
0: I want to come back to the idea of the ummah and women's um, imamhood, imamate, uh, or women's leadership positions, roles being seen as more local when they're actually much more beyond local, beyond the local. So in what ways does this book um, ask readers to rethink our assumptions of what the ummah is and when a person is contributing to and participating in dialogues about and with the ummah, um, rather than simply to their local communities?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, I think that that quote that I mentioned before is really important to remember here, right, that if we think about something like the ummah, a concept of global community that brings believers together, then we have to recognize that that that's an overall concept and it's comprised of many individual uh, ways, the diverse ways of, of being Muslim within that. Um, and I, I know I've alluded to this again and again in, in terms of what I think, but I do think it's important to emphasize that we need to ask questions about if the communities are so diverse, um, what gets left out when we bring that diversity to the table, when we talk about the global Ummah, and have as many conversations as possible about the different answers. Um, so as I reiterate throughout this book, um, what I'm particularly interested in, but it's not the only uh, Way to look at this um, conceptualization of the global umma. I'm interested in the disjuncture between representations of of sites of women's experiences as atypical institutions in and in the global ummah and sort of discourses about um, space and Muslims and gender on one hand, and then all of the information that we can find that suggests that there's far more diverse Islamic institutions and spaces than are being recognized. So that's that's one point at which I'm interested in pursuing ways of rethinking the ummah. Um, and then, of course, thinking of that not merely as a case of misinformation, but as deliberate silences that have been constructed um, due to different historical and contemporary sociocultural contexts. Um, I think the more documentation we can provide about the Ummah about a sort of ways in which people experiencing uh, are experiencing being Muslim, uh, religious practices, beliefs, ideas, um, the more inclusive histories that, that we can provide, and a more expansive understanding of Muslim experience in general. So um, that's why, although description is not my only task here, I do think the documentation of the details of um, the Nisha Miski and the Mudahim are absolutely essential um, for us to begin conceptualizing these larger ideas of community. You
0: speak compellingly compellingly, um, about the public-private dichotomy in the book. Um, How how do the Nisha Miski's complicate the public-private discourse that plagues academic conversations on, um, especially on notions of gender and sexuality in Muslim communities?
1: Yeah, um, that's another great question. Thank you. Um, in chapter three, which I called Dimensions, I spent a lot of time outlining outlining what I saw as the existing spatial tropes that are common about Muslims, um, including the public-private dichotomies idea. Um, and as I noted, public-private dichotomies, this idea um, of, of a divide between spaces can be really useful for understanding Muslim space in general. I think it highlights the variety of spaces that can be included in the category of Muslim space. So for example, once you start talking about public private distinctions in again, the the quote Muslim world, um, people note that it's incorrect to privilege formal institutional spaces as the only spaces for being Muslim, right? So people start talking not just about mosques as sites of Muslim community, but it brings into conversation um, the relationship to other spaces like homes and schools and markets and so on, uh, all of which can be sites of Muslim community through this framework. So that is very useful um, when thinking about a public-private dichotomy. Excuse me. But I think at the same time, it's an incomplete model. Obviously, not all spaces conform to this division. I I mentioned a few examples in the book of um, spaces that sort of transgress that boundary historically. Um, And I think that the concept has become so ubiquitous that it's it's no longer always useful, right? And it's not just simply incomplete. It's not just simply leaving out spaces. it's so common when people write about Muslim spaces that they use the public-private dichotomy. Um, although I do think this is changing, <laughs> um, but mm-hmm. but it has become a reified category, right? That it's just this label for spatial practices that overemphasize notions about gender divides and obscure our uh, a more nuanced comprehension of actual practices, which, as I I know I've been saying it again and again, is what I'm all about, you know, what people are actually doing. And so reliance on one simple dichotomy doesn't capture the diversity of Muslim experience to me. And I think the Nisha Miski example demonstrates this really well. Um, The women's mosques in the Maldives are sort of a place outside the inside of Muslim homes, right? The government officials who talked about getting women outside the home were thinking of the mosque as outside, Um, But they were also discussed as being inside the Muslim community and Muslim practices, as opposed to other institutions that women might have been more resistant um, in attending spaces for. Um, And then as I discuss in the book, there are also other spatial dichotomies which are more relevant to people's lives. So the island-non-island divide or the national-global divide or the local-national divide were all important in people's lives and helped to form... Their ideas about Muslim spaces as well. Um, so uh, I think um, there's not simply one fixed site. We're going back to that idea of places again as a container of multiple meanings. And the what I would call the multivocality of Maldivian women's mosques as uh, places shows us is that this one spatial trope, this idea of the public-private dichotomy, is, is just simply an insufficient conceptual framework for understanding what people are actually doing.
0: So, in your discussion on the tourism industry in the Maldives, you addressed the excellent question of why it is that, despite the fact that the Maldives is a popular tourist destination, knowledge of the Nishamiskees remains limited. Now, this isn't just about you know people who are writing about the women's masks, um, such as women's masks in America, and then declaring that the you know the first women's mask in history. This is about people who have who can actually have physical access to these masks if they want. Um, and they're right there, and they still come out of the Maldives not knowing that this is a thing. How how does that work? How is that possible?
1: Yeah, you know, I have um, <laughs> actually spoken to some people who have, you know, gone on vacation to the Maldives, and not been aware um, in any substantial way that it is a Muslim-majority country, actually. <laughs> so, you know, it's, um, <laughs> it is interesting. I, I think it's... Um, you know, in part due to the geography of the region. The country of the Maldives is made up of over a thousand separate coral islands and, um, only about 200 of them are inhabited. And by inhabited, we mean that there are villages on these. And then there's another sort of 80, uh, or so right now, I think at the last count that are resort islands. So resorts are very separate. The places that tourists go are these separate little worlds almost. And, um, many resort visitors don't inha- uh, visit the inhabited Maldivan islands at all. They fly into the Malay airport and then they're taken either by private boat or by private plane directly to the resorts. Um, even when people do visit islands, there's often a very carefully orchestrated event that goes on. I, yeah, it's reminded me quite a lot of the sort of cruise ships landing in a port for a few hours. You know, um, I had the chance to see an island, get ready for a visit and sort of open up these tourist shops. And then, you know, even in those tourist shops, I was really fascinated actually to see that um, some of what was being sold there, most of what was being sold there actually um, was oriented more towards a general island concept than um, anything about contemporary or even historical Maldivian life. So when I looked at the tourist shops that people were getting ready to open for tourists coming through, most of the souvenirs that were sold there were actually made in Sri Lanka or Indonesia, um, you know, and so it was interesting. I had actually just come from Indonesia when I was there and it was some of the same items um, that were being sold in, in the shops there. Um, and this is a demographic issue as well, right? So many of the workers uh, in the resorts in the Maldives aren't Maldivian either. Um, I think when I wrote uh, the book, no, I think when I was visiting the Maldives, excuse me, I think I read somewhere that about 53% of resort staff were expatriates. Um, and the government controlled that number. The last numbers I saw were from 2018, and I think um, some of these controls have been removed. And those numbers from 2018 said that 70% of resort workers were foreign nationals. Um, So a lot of tourists will come to the Maldives and not actually meet any Maldivans at all um, while they're visiting me. What what really interested me uh, in this is that well, tourists didn't usually interact with the mosques, they didn't interact with the, the inhabited islands that much or Waldivans at that time, um, I saw evidence again and again that the tourism industry definitely shaped the material conditions of mosque sites. And this was curious in, in response to this idea of government funding and support for mosques, um, because I found that some of the most spacious and well-kept Nisha Miski that I visited were actually on islands nearest to the tourist resorts. Um, And with the heme that I spoke with in some of these places, specifically mentioned that men's tourism employment from their island was a major source of financial support for the women's mosques on the island. So I found that that sort of um, gap between um, people visiting the mosques or being aware of the mosques and the sort of influence of the economic impact of tourism, um, that difference between that to be really interesting.
0: And then sadly... We learned that we learned in the last chapter that the Nishamiskis all closed down in 2009 and 2010. This was I I didn't know how to deal with this, to be honest. <laughs> I read it and I was I just I took it so personally. I was devastated. Mm-hmm. Why? What What happened? Like what, what even? So, so what yeah, you know, um,
1: I just want to start my answer by pointing to the first part of your question about learning learning. Um, in the last chapter, and maybe we should have had a spoiler alert here. Right? <laughs> um, I, I, oh, yes. I don't, that's okay. I don't, I don't tell readers this overtly until the last chapter of the book yes. um, <laughs> that the Nisha Miski closed. And I, or at least I don't go into detail about it. The fact is actually mentioned in the very first footnote of the introduction, right? I didn't want to hide it from people. Um, But I wanted to sort of set it apart for a moment, right? But I did mention it in the first footnote because I actually had to explain to the readers who are interested in how I was talking about it, who might know that, why I was using present tense throughout the book. This is actually something I agonized as a writer about for a while, um, how to explain my choice to use what we call the ethnographic present as my tense in the book, Um, because it might seem like a really minor grammatical choice, but it was actually a difficult decision because in anthropology... Um, there have been several really valid critiques about using the ethnographic present as a tense um, that creates this sort of ahistorical pretense of ethnographic accounts, right? That these people exist in a timeless vacuum um, separate from history. And that's not at all what I wanted to do. So I was uneasy about talking about mosques that may no longer exist in the past tense. But at the same time, I wanted to talk about them in the present tense because I wanted people to engage with them in that manner. Um, and I also think that the ethnographic present is really useful and important because it draws attention to the fact that all socio sociocultural, sociocultural knowledge is, is produced. Um, in specific moments in dialogues with people. So dialogues during field work, but also during writing, right, when you're talking with yourself about these ideas and what you want to commit. So I actually made the what might be a horrific writing decision. I'm sure my old English teachers were sort of Rolling their eyes, but I decided to switch around in tenses in this book. And I wanted to explain this in the very beginning of the book for any readers who were noticing it immediately and worried about it, um, because sometimes grammar makes people. I can't read the rest of this book because the grammar is bothering me, right? Um, but I, I explained that I switch so that I use the past tense when I'm relating first person narratives of moments in the Maldives, so that this is the time I was there and this is what happened. But the ethnographic present, when I'm discussing my ideas about the mosques, um, which was of course much later than my trip to the Maldives. So I tried to separate out those moments a little bit. And I, my hope was by doing this is that I helped readers focus on and follow the context in which I was talking about the topic. Um, but then I hope also that this sort of gets you ready for the idea that there's an issue of time passing when I'm writing this book, right? And when I visited the mosque and when I'm writing this book. And on one hand, um, I want to emphasize that time passing because it's quite significant that the Maldivian government chose to close down those institutions. The the simple answer to why that you ask is, is the political changes in the country um, and they're complex. And um, I, I think I'll say, read the book <laughs> um, to, to find out more about that. But um, the complexity of those political decisions um, is only one part of the story. And the, the, the closure of these mosques, in my mind, doesn't define them. So I didn't want to overemphasize their closure because I wanted to emphasize what they were as I had encountered them. Also, since I haven't been able to revisit the Maldives since their closure, I can't really speak to the circumstances surrounding that in any detailed way. You know, I've been f- keeping up with the news, um, speaking with scholars from the region. My discussions with friends in the Maldives um, suggest that actually This closure, as with most things, it's a far more complex issue than being presented in the media and official narratives. Um, The gaps between official narratives and women's narratives that I encountered within the Maldives make me hopeful that there are other gaps in these official narratives that we may not be seeing. Um, But I think this isn't, unfortunately, the time um, where I can access those, and I look forward to hearing from. Um, people who are able to do so.
0: So I I love ethnographies, and I'm wondering if what your overall experience was like conducting this research, if there were any striking, interesting anecdotes that you didn't get to share in the book um, that you want to share here?
1: Ah, well, I mean, you know, I um, mentioned at the very beginning of our discussion that um, my initial work was in northern India, and that's in the Himalayan region. And it's, it's very, very cold there most of the year. Um, and well I didn't think this was a huge conceptual shift because of some of the historical trajectories and interests that I have theoretically, um, in terms of climates, this was a huge shift for me. Um, the Maldives are extremely hot and I live in Florida, so I thought I would be ready for a tropical climate. Um, but I uh, was really overwhelmed for a while with the heat. Um, but sort of tangential to the heat or um, is uh, the sort of implications of these really bright, warm days. Because I arrived um, in the Maldives at night. I think I mentioned this very briefly in the book, but I didn't go into detail. Um, I flew in from Singapore, actually, and I arrived quite late at night. And I had arranged for um, the hotel I planned to stay at to pick me up because I had assumed that coming in past midnight, I would find, you know, the streets empty. Um, and that was, you know, part of perhaps my preconceived notions having worked, um, in the Himalayas where, you know, sort of when, when it's Maghrib, everybody should go home and be with their families and you don't, you don't go out at night, um, particularly, uh, as a young woman or as a family member, so on. Um, and so when I landed in the Maldives and, and, uh, Uh, went into the city, I was, I was really amazed to see the sheer volume of people in the streets at night. You know, at at first I thought there was some festival that I didn't know about or something happening because um, it just seemed like everybody was out. And I, and I came to realize and, and to learn after some time that there's this, this sort of thriving night culture in coffee shops and night markets and um, people of all ages, you know young women and men and families um, and older people all coming out and um, that was really interesting and fascinating to me. It wasn't something that I had ever thought about in terms of the the climate and the ways in which it might uh, affect people's lives but it was it was really fun and interesting to to learn about and to understand just how that sort of rhythm of life um, was so different from what I had assumed it would be like.
0: Is there anything else that, um, anything we haven't talked about here that you'd like the readers and listeners to know about this book, about the research, about your research?
1: Well, I think um, you have been extremely comprehensive with these great questions. Thank you. It's It's been really um, wonderful to get a chance to talk about all of this and, and share some of my ideas on it. I mean, I think I hope it's clear from what I've been talking about that um, this book is something that I'm deeply interested in and uh, love to engage in conversation with people over. Um, That it's not just about the Maldives, although the Maldives are interesting and wonderful to study as well, but that um, it's about these broader issues about the ways in which we construct places and construct history and about the diversity of Muslim experience in general. So I hope that it will be of interest to a very broad readership Um, and judging from responses thus far, it seems like it is. So I'm, I'm really overjoyed about that.
0: Great. Um, And as we close, uh, what are you working on currently? Any um, exciting new research right now that you're working on that we can look forward to in the future?
1: I have in recent years been working on a um, project on American mosques and I have a um, blog space on that um, where I, have interviews with different imams and walkthroughs of mosques so people get a sense to see of of these as spaces and to think about the ways in which spaces um, are related to community um, I also have been um, working on a book I'm actually just finishing up a co-edited volume with Megan Adam Cincy Japati who's at Gettysburg College we're um, putting out a new volume on Muslim communities in the Himalayas, which we're very excited about that should be coming out with Rutledge in 2021, probably. Um, and, uh, I am hoping to continue with, um, some of this new work in the United States soon. Oh, I also have, uh, um, another new book coming out with, um, Lexington. You know, everything's a little bit delayed right now, so I'm not sure about the, the time schedules. Um, but uh, Rachel Kaur, who is one of my colleagues here at the Honors College at Florida Atlantic University, Rachel Kaur and I have an edited volume coming out about uh, ethnohistory history um, and the intimate past um, that should perhaps be out in, in fall 2020.
0: Well, that's exciting. Thank you so much, Jacqueline, for uh, talking to me about your book. And um, I certainly, as I told you, I had a great time reading it. I learned so much from it. And I have no doubts that our readers will, our listeners will as well. Um, so I look forward to hopefully our next interview for your next book. Awesome. Sometime soon.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So that was my interview with Jacqueline Fuchs about her latest book, Locating Maldivian Women's Masks in Global Discourses. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next time.